Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. We have a great show tonight. I'm so glad you're with us. Welcome to Progress After Dark. If you liked our conversation with William Shatner the other night, thank you very much. If you missed it, you can hear that anytime on SiriusXM On Demand, on the app, and on the John Fugelsang podcast. He was a blast. Coming up in the next couple of days, uh, whew, our conversation with the great Jennifer Tilly, Oscar nominee, a terrific actor terrific comedic actor, and Paul Feig, the brilliant director of, uh, my God, Bridesmaids and, and, and Spy and the Ghostbusters reboot, which was the top grossing live action comedy for the entire year of 2016, I'll have you know. Paul Feig has a new movie on Amazon, not Amazon, on Netflix, uh, The School of Good and Evil. And uh, boy, we had a fantastic conversation last week. So we have lots of good celebrities coming up, but tonight it's going to be a powerhouse show. Tonight we play the game Biggest Bigot of the whole damn day. Who will win the biggest bigot of the whole damn day? Well, it's a good day to do it because today we celebrate two different holidays on the same day. We celebrate indigenous peoples and Columbus, who raped, mutilated, tortured, and murdered lots of indigenous peoples. I know, it seems strange, right? But like racist Jesus said, there are very fine people on both sides. Pulitzer Prize winner, Michael Hiltzik of the L.A. Times, is with us tonight. He's got a couple of great pieces in the L.A. Times, one of which is about neoliberalism and how the Republicans have pulled this thing off for 40 years straight, but also a great piece he had on Sachin Littlefeather, who famously was the Native American woman who collected Marlon Brando's Best Actor Oscar in uh, 1973 when he declined after winning for The Godfather because of Hollywood's treatment of Indians. Sachin Littlefeather finally got her apology from the Academy last month, and she died about a week later. He has a great piece about the truth and the myths of that night. Also, comedian Rhonda Handsome joins us. Laughing liberally opens off Broadway, so let's get ready for that. And then one of our favorite guests, terrific journalist and activist from First Nations community, the great Simon Moya Smith, 
will be joining us to talk about, oh, well, you-know-who day. And, of course, all night long, your calls at 866-997-4748. We are blessed, as always, to have the great Chris Hauselt as our executive producer. He runs this thing from uh, somewhere in South Carolina. He won't tell us geographically where. It's an island. It's supposed to be nice. Thea Harper is running this thing from Brooklyn. Our wonderful associate producer, when you call, you might get to speak to her. Treat her with the utmost respect. Or I'll send Trucker Steve to your house. Uh, Laughing Liberally opens off-Broadway tonight. It's going to be running for three weeks at Theater 555. You can go to IndictmentExcitements.com if you're in the tri-state area and want to see some quality political comedy. I will be performing opening night and then Wednesday. And then uh, Dad's going to be away for a few days. I'm not going to be here on Thursday and Friday. We'll have the great Joe Sudbay filling in next week. I'll be doing the show from L.A., as we get set for the big sexy liberal show, the final tour of the Safe Democracy movement with Stephanie and myself, our special guests include Rob Reiner and um, Hal Sparks is performing. Frangela is performing. It's going to be a great, great show and a pay-per-view. So if you can't go to any of these shows and you want to see some great political comedy, Saturday the 22nd, go to SexyLiberal.com and order yourself a streaming extravaganza. We would love to have you be a part of it. Is that it for announcements? I think. Oh, and I'll be playing at the Comedy Store uh, next Monday. So that's that's a thing, too. All right. We have a great show planned tonight. I'm so glad you're with us. There's a lot to cover. Let's get to it. Because, you know, Columbus Day, well, it's a special time. Columbus Day is when people who think immigrants are thieves and rapists and murderers get together to celebrate yeah, an immigrant who stole, raped, and murdered. So let's play Biggest Bigot of the Whole Damn Day, Columbus Day edition. Uh, bachelorette number one, Alabama Republican, Senator Tommy Tuberville. I didn't have him on my racist bingo card, and I don't know why. But he was pushing a racist narrative about black people and crime at a campaign rally starring Donald Trump on Saturday night. Maybe you've heard this clip already. It's pretty shocking, but honestly, the bigots are working overtime. It makes him look desperate. Here, here he is. This is Republicans pushing crime as the number one election issue because they can't do unemployment and they can't do the deficit and they can't do family values and they can't do gas prices. So here's Tommy Tuberville explaining why Democrats back reparations for the descendants of slavery because, well, they're all crooks. They su- Some people say, well, they're soft on crime. No, they're not soft on crime. They're pro-crime. They won't crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bullshit. They are not owed that. That's a sitting U.S. senator. Um, yeah. Now, now, before he was elected to Congress, this is the guy, Tuberville, who coached football for over a decade at Auburn University and made his fortune off of black male bodies being beaten up. NAACP President uh, Derek Johnson said in a statement, Senator Tuberville's comments are flat out racist, ignorant and utterly sickening. His words promote a centuries old lie about black people and throughout our history have resulted in the most dangerous policies and violence attacks on our community. Uh, Congressman Kowesi Mafumi from Maryland called Tuberville's comments about the most vicious, vile, repugnant, parochial, racist things that I've heard. In a long, long time, I would hope that every elected official on both sides of the aisle condemned that he is a bigot. And until he says something different, he will always be seen as a bigot. Spoiler alert. uh, Not a lot of Republicans came out to condemn what Tommy Tuberville said. And again, this is just right after Donald Trump 
was using an anti-Asian slur to refer to his own transportation secretary, Elaine Chow, calling her Coco Chow last week. Um, what I'm trying to say is it seems like Republicans are getting a lot more comfortable saying the quiet racist part out loud and proud. I mean, my God, Tommy Tuberville, he's not even up for re-election and he's selling this shit. This is Alabama, folks. Look at the Senate seat in Alabama. They went from Jeff Sessions, who was too racist to be a federal judge, but not too racist to be an Alabama senator. Then that seat went to Doug Jones, friend of the show, civil rights hero, who prosecuted the racist behind the 1963 Baptist Church bombing. He was their senator. And then they went from the civil rights hero to yet another racist, Tommy Tuberville. It's so hard to shock me. And he just did it. They want to pay reparations to people who were descendants of slavery because they think the people who do crime are owed that. You will never hear Tommy Tuberville talk about how it was slavery itself that was the crime. But it wouldn't be a bigot off if we didn't talk about Lady Blah Blah, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, she was in Mesa, Arizona on Sunday, and um, MJ decided to push some great replacement racist rhetoric, which we've heard Blake Masters use, and he hasn't been condemned for that. He hasn't been canceled uh, in Arizona. So this is what the white nationalists say, that the non-white immigrants are coming over here to replace you, you native-born white Americans. Joe Biden's five million illegal aliens are on the verge of replacing you, replacing your jobs and replacing your kids in school. And coming from all over the world, they're also replacing your culture. And that's not great for America. Okay, uh, right. Now, obviously, Marjorie Taylor Greene says this stuff because it gets decent people angry. And when decent people are angry, shitty people think they've been helped somehow. But she gave these remarks three days after Democrats in the House introduced a resolution trying to censor her for posting on Twitter that Joe Biden is Hitler. And the post had a doctored video of Biden with a Hitler style mustache and swastikas in the background and audio of Hitler. My God. My God, can I just say, if Joe Biden really is that liberal, somewhere in hell, Hitler is furious at Marjorie Taylor Greene for drawing his mustache on Joe Biden. But hey, he'll tell her when he sees her, won't he? You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke at a white nationalist conference earlier this year and then claimed she didn't know that it was a white nationalist conference. So she's, it's, it's Tommy Tuberville and her who could possibly challenge these two for biggest bigot of the whole damn day. People of Earth, I give you. Kanye West. Let me share the tweet that has since been deleted because Kanye got in trouble. This was posted October 8th, Saturday night, 1155, right before midnight. He said, I'm a bit sleepy tonight, but when I wake up, I'm going DEATHCON 3 on Jewish people. All caps. The funny thing is, I can't actually be anti-Semitic because black people are actually Jew. Also, you guys have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone, whoever opposes your agenda. Um, okay, Kanye. First off, uh, good luck working in the music industry. Good luck working in the entertainment industry. Great for you. Uh, I'm glad you're going DeathCon 3 on Jewish people. Kanye, it's, uh, it's, it's DeathCon 3, not DeathCon 3. And um, I'm not even going to get into the punctuation in the tweet. <laughs> so who could it be? Who's the biggest bigot of the day? Could it be Tommy Tuberville, Kanye West, or Marjorie Taylor Greene? Uh, the answer is none of the above. The answer is people who are defending Christopher Columbus all damn day. 
they get the award for the biggest bigot of the whole damn day because Columbus Day is when we honor a man who killed more innocent people in the name of religion than ISIS on their best day. People of Earth, I give you no less a towering figure of morality and discernment than star of 9-11, Rudolph Giuliani. Way to do that. You go read Karl Marx. Kill the hero. Well, Columbus is probably the first hero. And uh, there's no evidence that he did any of these things. In fact, most of the atrocities they're talking about occurred 30 years after he left. If anything, he was he was a, he was benevolent. He tried very, very hard to avoid the wars what? that went on. What wars? What? Let, let, I mean, look, the people he brought over with him, they weren't saints. They were soldiers. Okay. But the people yeah. there were living in the third world, including yeah. a third world of violence where they oh. where they scalped each other and killed each other and raped each other. And this wasn't a civilization they came to. This was a third, fourth world country. They had no idea of what they were facing. Columbus did everything he could to control it. He got out of control 40 years later, and he's being blamed for it. I mean, this history is like uh, only 10 years old. <laughs> so there's there's Rudy Giuliani. Let, let's let's break that down, shall we? Because this is what they're doing now. Um, and, and again, I'm not saying you should go out there and be the person who ruins the Columbus Day Parade. But fuck the Columbus Day Parade. OK, fuck playing dumb about this. Fuck pretending there's any way you can rationalize the behavior of Christopher Columbus. He was not a good guy with good intentions. Let me quote him himself from his diary. Talking about the Arawak people who greeted him and his men. They brought us parrots and balls of cotton and spears and many other things. They willingly traded everything they owned. They were well built with good bodies and handsome features. They do not bear arms and do not know them, for I showed them a sword, and they took it by the edge and cut themselves out of ignorance. They have no iron. Their spears are made of cane. They would make fine servants. With fifty men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever they want." Are you shocked the people who don't mind a symbol of slavery like the Confederate flag want to honor a symbol of slavery like Christopher Columbus? Let's talk about our good friend Michael Knowles, who has a lovely video on Prager University about how Columbus was a hero. He said, how many people do you think Christopher Columbus killed? Was it more or fewer than the 80,000 slaughtered by the Aztecs over the course of four days of the consecration of... So this is what they'll do. They were savages. Columbus came here, but they were savages. They were cannibals. So, so, So he's no worse than them. Yeah, what he did was bad, but what they were doing was bad. They're doing the same thing to each other. So who cares that Columbus was mutilating people and chopping off hands and raping and selling children into sex slavery? Well, well, here's the difference. See, we don't have a federal holiday honoring the Aztecs who slaughtered 80,000. Columbus literally sold nine-year-old girls into sex slavery. Let's share facts. Columbus was responsible for forcing thousands of natives on the Caribbean islands into slave labor and exporting many women and children as sex slaves. He ordered every Indian over 14 to give a large quantity of gold to the Spanish on pain of death. If they didn't have gold, they could give cotton. And... Yes, he really did sell nine and 10-year-old girls into slavery. In a letter to Doña Juana de la Torre, a friend of the Spanish queen, he wrote, There are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those from nine to 10 are now in demand. And for all ages, a good price may be paid. Sex trafficking of children. In 1493, he returned to Europe after the first voyage. and He wrote a famous letter 
to Ferdinand and Isabella. And he said uh, he would offer slaves as many as they shall order to be shipped. So then they went back and came the disgusting, gruesome slave raids of 1495. Howard Zinn covered this very well in A People's History of the United States. Columbus couldn't find as much gold as he'd hoped on the Caribbean islands, so he chose instead to round up a ton of natives to be slaves and export them to Europe. He had promised so much, right? He said there's so much gold there. So on his second expedition in 1495, they gave him 17 ships and more than 1,200 men. And it was to get slaves and gold. But they couldn't find any slaves. So they went from island to island, taking Indians to be their prisoner. And they found more and more empty villages because people knew. On Haiti, they found the sailors they'd left behind at Fort Navidad had been killed in a battle with the Indians because they'd been roaming around the island, taking women and children as slaves. So again, Columbus couldn't find gold fields in Haiti. So he filled up the ships with slaves. And in 1495, they went on a huge slave raid. They rounded up 1,500 Arawak men, women, and children, and they put them in pens, guarded by dogs, and then they picked the 500 strongest to put on the ships. And of the 500, 200 died on the boat. Now, in October of 1495, Columbus's friend, Michel de Cuneo, told the story of how Columbus gave him a young girl. Friends, I tweeted a graphic with this story on it earlier today. Um, you're welcome to share it and quote it to anyone in your life who defends Columbus and ask them if they're willing to own this. Here is Columbus's friend. When I was in the boat, I took a beautiful cannibal girl and the admiral, that's Columbus, gave her to me. Having her in my room and she being naked as is their custom, I began to want to amuse myself with her. Since I wanted to have my way with her and she was not willing, she worked me over so badly with her nails that I wished I had never begun. To get to the end of the story, seeing how things were going, I got a rope and tied her up so tightly that she made unheard of cries which you wouldn't have believed. At the end, we got along so well that, let me tell you, it seemed she had studied at a school for whores. According to this gentleman, Cuneo, Columbus ordered 1,500 men and women seized. And again, 200 of the people sent to Spain died on the voyage and were thrown into the Atlantic by the Spanish. So, <laughs> you know, th there are good things going on. And, and right now there's this new massive project that's trying to uncover the enslavement of Native Americans and really make it something we teach. You know, like the George Floyd murder drew so much attention to systemic racism, but most of us don't really talk much and we aren't taught much about indigenous enslavement in the U.S. and in South America. So this new digital project is going to be called Native Bound Unbound, Archive of Indigenous Americans Enslaved. And it's going to digitize and piece together stories of the millions of indigenous people whose lives were shaped by slavery. It's going to be like a show project for enslaved indigenous people. They're going to use baptismal records and documents and oral histories and letters and it's going to allow people to search for native americans who may have been enslaved and possibly locate their descendants it's going to go live in about a year it's going to be like enslaved.org which you should check out that's a database that gathers records about the lives of enslaved africans and their descendants but indigenous slavery coexisted with african slavery from the 16th to the late 19th century and we're never taught about it between 2.5 to 5 million indigenous people were enslaved from the time of Columbus to the end of the 19th century. So I take some heart from the fact that their stories are being told more than ever, and it's going to get harder and harder every year for soulless douchebags to defend Columbus for his massacres and torture and enslavement. But since it is Indigenous Peoples Day, let's go visit the granddaddy of all, shall we? 
the biggest racist we have, Donald Trump. And he wants to change the name of Columbus Day to Indigenous People's Day. Who likes that idea? Who likes it? What the heck are you saying? That's politically incorrect. See, what they don't understand is they're politically incorrect. So he wants to change it to Indigenous People's Day. Uh, not as long as I'm president, let me just tell you that. Okay. His memory stands as an enduring testament to the daring spirit that built our great civilization. And as long as I have anything to say about this, and I hope that's going to be a long time, it will always be Columbus Day. But you know, why, why, why do the racists have to be so stupid all the time? So, yeah, there you go. Now, again, what will our racist Columbus defenders say? You know what they're going to say. You can't judge him by modern standards. You know what? Let's not do that. Let's play it your way. Let's judge him by the standards of his day. Like the account written by Bartolomeo de las Casas, the Catholic priest who accompanied him, who wrote of his horror at what he saw, wrote directly to the king of Spain, hoping for new laws to prevent more brutal exploitation of indigenous peoples. Las Casas' writings spread around Europe. They were used as humanitarian justification for other European nations to go after Spain's colonizing with their own schemes of conquest and colonization. But the Catholic priest protested Columbus's cruelty back to the queen. Don't ever forget, the first act of protest by a white person in this hemisphere was a priest, and it was against Columbus. But awful men have always rationalized evil. It's what they do. I mean, when you think about it, why can't every day be, hey, let's post about what a genocidal incompetent dick Columbus was day instead of just once a year. And of course, let's not forget that he was a horrible person who died impoverished in jail, punished for his own atrocities and incompetence. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And welcome back. It's hard to believe that it's been almost 50 years since Marlon Brando declined his best actor Oscar for The Godfather and sent activist Sachin Littlefeather to pick it up. The whole episode kind of uh, got back to the front burner in the last month and a half because first the Academy issued an apology to Miss Littlefeather at age 75 for the way she was received at the ceremony. And they said they would host her for an evening of conversation, healing and celebration last month. And then, of course, Sashi and Littlefeather passed away just last week. So I want to play really quickly the brief clip from 1973 when she accepted Marlon Brando's Oscar for The Godfather. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and The Godfather, 
Miss Shashini Littlefeather. That he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me. And on television, in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg so, at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening, and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. So hardly a confrontational speech, right? I mean, that was the oral effect of uh, equivalent of giving the knee rather than giving the finger. She was deferential and wished for love and understanding. And of course, she was subject to abuse and mocking for decades, not the least of which was a, a pretty nasty joke Clint Eastwood told a few minutes later. And of course, for years, we heard this legend, this this legend that John Wayne was so furious backstage that it took six security guards to calm him down and restrain him because he wanted to go and physically attack this young woman. Well, Columbus Day is a time for being real and facing the truth about things. And that's why I was so excited that one of my favorite columnists had written a piece about this. Michael Hiltzik, of course, writes a daily blog at L.A. Times. His seventh book, Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads and the Making of Modern America is out now. His previous books include Dealers in Lightning, Xerox Park and the Dawn of the Computer Age and the New Deal, A Modern History. It is a great pleasure to welcome Pulitzer Prize winner Michael Hiltzik back to our show. Hello, sir. Hi. Well, uh, thanks, John. Thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure for me to be back with you. Well, thank you. Talking about Sachin Littlefeather is a great way to tie this to Indigenous Peoples Days. But of course, it allows me to talk about all your recent columns. But I I wanted to start with this one because I love that you titled it. Did John Wayne try to assault Sachin Littlefeather at the 1973 Oscars? Debunking a Hollywood myth. There's going to be a lot of nice liberal people who will be disappointed by this, but let me begin by asking Mr. Hiltzik, what was it that made you want to write a column about Sachin Littlefeather's experience? Well, you know, one of the things that I I enjoy doing more than anything else with this column is basically uh, debunking myths and telling the truth. And there's no myth-making machinery more potent than Hollywood. Um, (laughs) Uh, I wrote this, I, I have to say that in writing this, I stood on the shoulders to paraphrase Isaac Newton uh, of somebody else, and that's Farah Nemi, who's a great cinema historian who uh, who writes a blog under the, the pseudonym of Self-Styled Siren. And um, she went in and really examined this this legend and, and deconstructed it completely. And I basically thought that, that her work really uh, uh, needed uh, broader exposure. So um, I talked to her and I, I ran it and I put it in context with with Hollywood. And, you know, I, I think a lot of my readers probably were surprised to see me essentially defending yeah. John Wayne, who, who was sort of slandered by this myth that he had wanted to march on stage and beat up Sashin Littlefeather for daring to question Hollywood's approach to uh, Native Americans. I can only imagine the kind of pushback you got from people who thought they were going to get a big, juicy John Wayne racist piece of history. And, and instead, yeah, instead you're here to, to tell the truth. But let's put it in context, because I think one of the reasons people are so 
ready to assume this was true was John Wayne's own words, his famous interview with Playboy, uh, where he said he would not feel guilty about the fact that five or ten generations ago these people were slaves. He said, I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility. I don't believe in giving authority and points of leadership and judgment to irresponsible people. And then he said uh, it was wrong for white Americans. That He said it wasn't wrong to take Native American land. He said there were great numbers of people who needed new land. And the Indians were selfishly trying to keep it for themselves. So you're, you're, you're not right, arguing that John... Go ahead. Well, that's a completely ahistorical um, uh, take. As, as oh, obvious. sure. In fact, uh, uh, earlier I wrote a column some years ago advocating taking John Wayne's name off the Orange County International Airport yes, because sir. of those words. So basically, uh, this was a case in which Hollywood essentially did what it often does, which is take an actor's persona uh, as identical to his actual personality. Yes. Um, what what Farinami, uh, uh established is that Wayne was nowhere near the stage. He did nothing like uh, complain about this or agitate. The, the whole Session Little Feather's appearance was so brief that there wasn't even any time for somebody like John Wayne to get angry, much less to prepare to march on stage. That's right. and, and Wayne's own uh, son said, uh, you know, that's not what my father was like. He wouldn't think of uh, punching out a woman. Uh, and, and so it never happened. This was a myth that got sort of generated by a producer of the Oscars, and it grew over time. It wasn't mentioned that day in 1973. And, you know, and then there would be interviews of the producer, and he would sort of build on this this story because he could see that it was getting some purchase. I mean, I'm I'm so mad about this story. I read the article and on the one hand, um, I'm I'm mad at this producer for for being unfair to John Wayne and for lying to us all to make his own event he produced sound uh, more exciting. But as you point out in the piece, for this to have actually happened within 45 seconds, John Wayne would have had to hear her speak, get furious start to mount an attack and then be so violent that six security guards have to hold him back all within a span of 45 seconds and you also right, point and out, she pointed out uh, it, john wayne was actually still recuperating from lung surgery at the time he, he it, it was clear he actually went on stage late in that uh, telecast basically to uh, to close the telecast off and welcome hollywood luminaries onto stage and you could see that he was basically gasping for breath just to do that for a you know an That's orchestrated right. appearance so it, it right it never happened uh it never could have happened and as your your listeners can tell from the clip that you you aired sashin Littlefeather was very demure about it she was kind she was gentle she was earnest she didn't really say anything that should have inspired irate anger as was attributed to john wayne did john wayne ever criticize Sachin Littlefeather personally? Uh, no, he never did. When he was asked uh, about this episode years later, he would say, uh, you have to ask Marlon about that, because after all, it was Marlon Brando who had sent her up there. But there's nothing on record that suggests that he himself uh, made any personal cracks about her or about the episode. 
I really do appreciate you um, giving the lie to this old Hollywood wives tale uh, because the truth is a lot more important than satisfying people who want to believe bad things about John Wayne. I, I, I quoted his Playboy interview to show why so many people could easily believe it. But um, it is a bit of a relief to know. And, and you can watch Clint Eastwood's crack as soon as it's done to see how condescending people were to Ms. Little Feather. It, it's very, very poignant that the Academy just gave her an apology like two weeks before yes, she died. Typical how belated it was. But uh, yeah, um, you know, it was Clint Eastwood's uh, crack that was really tasteless. And while Session Little Feather was up on stage, there was a moment early in her uh, her statement where you could hear boos and maybe catcalls from the audience. But that ebbed. And by the time she was done, she walked off the stage to applause. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, I love that you do this, that you take these these cherished historical facts and find out exactly how real they are. It, it seems on Columbus Day, it's it's very, very appropriate. Ms. Littlefeather still did, though, go through years of just being ridiculed and mocked. And, and the Academy did refer to that in their apology. Uh, that's that's true. Uh, she became sort of a, a, a figure of fun and a figure of ridicule. She felt it uh, very deeply, and and I think even more so, given that what she was standing up for was the way that Hollywood basically uh, made ghosts out of Native Americans for decades and decades of cowboy and Indian uh, productions. Uh, And it really is only, I would say, in the last maybe 10 years, maybe less, that Hollywood has begun to, to actually view Native Americans as people... And a community that needs to be admired and and depicted fairly. I think the irony of this is that John Wayne gives the greatest performance of any actor as a uh, as a racist white man who hates um, Native Americans in John Ford's The Searchers. It is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the greatest performance of John Wayne's career. And he plays a hardcore former Confederate general, white supremacist who is so obsessed with racial purity. He searches for Natalie Wood in the desert for years when she's kidnapped. And when she's become a member of the tribe, he wants to kill her. It's, it's incredible to think about, I guess that the greatest racist performance could be played by such a racist. (laughs) That's right. Maybe that's one example of when the, uh, you know, if you have the legend and the truth, you can print both (laughs) the legend and the truth. Uh, I want to move on to a recent column you had, Mr. Hiltzik, that um, really nails it. And it's a piece you had in the L.A. Times last week where you discuss uh, J. Bradford DeLong's book, Slouching Toward Utopia. Your column is called How Did America Get Addicted to a Policy That Fails Everyone But the Rich? And it's all about how these New Deal policies that were crafted in the 1930s created a long era of widespread prosperity. And then somewhere along the line in the mid-1970s, Around the time of the neoliberalism of Ronald Reagan, we as a people just kind of got tired of policies that lifted each other out of poverty. Yeah, uh, Brad DeLong is is really one of our most distinguished uh, political economists. He's at UC Berkeley, uh, as as I'm sure you know, and his book, his brand new book, Slouching Towards Utopia, is designed to be a a historical look at, um, at, at economics, basically from 1870 through 2010. And then he and I, in a conversation that we had about the book, looked ahead to where we are now and where we might be be going. (laughs) And the the, the point that he makes and that I wanted to to bring out is, yeah, that 
social democracy, which really came out of the New Deal and the Great Depression and and solved a lot of economic problems that the country had that have led us into the Great Depression, uh, really uh, lasted into the mid-70s. It created not only prosperity, but prosperity for everyone. This was a period of uh, much less economic inequality than we have today or that we had even before in the 20s and early 30s. Um, and uh, it, it turned, we, we experienced what Brad calls the neoliberal term. It turned on a dime in the mid to late 70s. And right. he really struggled with the question of why that happened. And beyond that, why we are still in this neoliberal era, even though what we can see in front of us every day, that neoliberalism, this ec economic theory that you really have to trust the market to right. solve all problems, has been great for the rich and really not very great for everybody else. And it doesn't recognize that the ordinary person comes to the market with, with unequal power to uh, uh, wealthy people and, and corporations, and you need government to redress that imbalance. Nevertheless, exactly. not only uh, is neoliberalism still with us, but it, it sort of it has been subsumed by the Democratic Party. Bill Clinton sort of accepted the principles of neoliberalism when he talked about ending welfare as we know it. Even yes. Barack Obama accepted the principles of neoliberalism when he talked about the need for austerity after the Great That's Recession. Right. These are neoliberal tropes, and they really just add to the uh, the inequality that really afflicts our, our economy uh, and our society today. Well, and it bleeds over into, you know, all these Republican governors and senators competing to see who can get rid of pandemic unemployment benefits faster, who can deregulate more, who can go ahead and chip away at Medicaid or try to privatize Social Security. I mean, you point out we had 30 solid years of prosperity in this country, and Eisenhower warned us about this. And then suddenly we have the era of neoliberalism or trickle-down economics where too many Democratic presidents have gone along with it. You, you do point out, though, and, and Professor DeLong points out, we do have a lot more stuff now. There's rising inequality, and our living standards have not improved, but we, we, we do have more disposable stuff. Households with home air conditionings have gone up from 55% and 79 to 90%. Microwave ovens from 5% to 92%. Computers from 0% to 70%. It does seem like we're having more of these props that you're supposed to have in a good middle-class life. But as you point out, the ability to pay for a, a good house, a good college without borrowing, health insurance... That's where the American dream has seemingly disappeared. I, I think that's true. I think uh, Brad DeLong really put his finger on it. I mean, it is true that in, in a sense, we are all richer than we were uh, 30 years ago. And we're certainly society is certainly richer than it was in the 1870s. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that technology has gotten cheaper and more accessible. Air conditioners, uh, microwave ovens computers, smartphones, name it. But the, the, the essential economic security that makes for a middle class life has, has receded from the grasp of the middle class. And yeah. as, you as you just said, we're talking about the ability to afford a house, a, a single family house in a good neighborhood, the ability to, to have not only to get your children into a good college, 
but to get them through college without having to borrow. The exactly. ability to have uh, health access to, to health care, that doesn't leave you bankrupt. Uh, we don't have that right now. And the jobs that we were accustomed to in the 50s and 60s and early 70s to be the, the foundations of a middle class life, that could be, you know, being a middle manager at a, at a supermarket. Those mm -hmm. no longer will pay for a middle class life. Those jobs have been diminished to the That's point right. that nobody can afford to make ends meet with one one paycheck from jobs like that any longer. Yeah, the two-tier pay system killed that for the uh, assembly line in Detroit as well. Mr. Hiltzik, before I let you go in our final minute, I just have to bring up this dynamite column you have this week. Citing a deeply flawed, non-scientific study, Florida wrongly advises young men to avoid a COVID vaccine. I know Ron DeSantis really wants to be president, and part of that is not giving a damn about public health and hating science. But I don't understand this level of anti-vaccine disinformation coming from a governor's office. Well, I, I really don't understand it either. And and as I pointed out in the column, it, the, the harvest of these policies by Ron DeSantis, which are anti-vaccine, uh, you know, basically pro-COVID, have made Florida one of the worst performing states in the union in terms of the death rate from COVID-19. Uh, and this all is, a you know, it's attributable to the fact that he discourages people from getting vaccinated. He's Boom. put, as I, as I wrote, uh, a, a quack and a crank, Joseph Ladapo, as his Surgeon General, and, and Lenapo is out there basically advising people not to get vaccinated. He's advising people not to wear masks, all these things. We know these, these are the wrong policies if you want to save people from, in, from disease and death from COVID. Mm -hmm. And yet, for some reason, DeSantis seems to think that if he takes a stand against all this stuff, He's he's basically taking a stand against liberals and that exactly. somehow his base will respond to that. It, it's frankly, it's it's scary and it's disgusting. Michael Hiltzik is the great Pulitzer Prize columnist for the L.A. Times and paper. I really miss getting at my front door every day. Follow him on socials at Hiltzik M. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Please come see us again sometime soon. Anytime. Thanks a lot. Quick break. We'll be right back with your calls. This is Sirius XM. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is SiriusXM Progress. 
We are celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day, while others celebrate the life of a man who killed more people in the name of religion than ISIS on their best day. That's why I'm so excited to welcome Simon Moya-Smith back to our show. He's an Oglala Lakota and Chicano journalist. He's a contributing writer at NBC News. You can read his stuff all about the intersection of his heritage and modern politics. He's the author of the book, Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass. And he recently profiled actress Paulina Alexis of the Peabody Award-winning FX hit Reservation Dogs for the Cut. It is always a great pleasure to welcome back the force of nature that is Simon Moya-Smith. Hello, sir. Oh, right on, man. It's good to be with you again. Good to talk to you. Tell me how you've been and where you are and what you've been up to. I'm over here in Santa Fe, uh, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, it's honestly, there's a lot of, you know, indigenous things that, that, you know, happen here um, far more than in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have a pretty good, a pretty good First Nations population in New York City, I have learned over the years. But yes, you're in a much better place. I got to tell you, Simon, I, I really enjoyed your piece. Um, uh, in the cut, but I, I, I would be most remiss if I didn't ask you how you're feeling today. This is really, in my lifetime, really the first uh, of these holidays where I saw Indigenous Peoples Day get a lot more ink on the internet than mm-hmm. Columbus Day did. Yeah, and it's, it's, that transition is already happening. I mean, Italian-American and uh, Italian-American organizations are coming out, you know, speaking against Columbus and Columbus Day. And more people, because of the internet, are uh, are aware of who he was, what he did, you know, and the brutality of just, again, so like, he would hang 13 indigenous people at a time, one for every 12 apostle and one more for Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, you know, those facts are now kind of like readily available. More people are aware of it because of the internet and because of, you know, hashtag native Twitter, indigenous people, you know, talking back, just saying, look, no, Columbus was a horrible, maniacal, murdering, genocidal maniac. And so some people are starting to, you know, take it upon themselves, especially at legislatures, states and in cities. They're replacing uh, Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. And, yeah, it's it's moving. It's happening. It's it's amazing to see. I mean, I, I get the argument from some of our Italian-American friends who, who want to feel like their culture is being honored, but I, I'm always happy to say every Italian-American I've ever met in my life is morally superior to Christopher Columbus, and the yeah. country's named after an Italian. So, you know, you're, you're kind of covered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, the change, it's slow, but it's happening, right? The Washington football changed, their, their team changed their name. The Cleveland Indians are now the Cleveland Guardians. Yeah. Uh, Omaha Bank dropped its indigenous, you know, native head logo. It's it's small. It's it's happening, but you know, it's it's inevitable that Columbus Day will no longer be a federal holiday. I just give it a couple That's more right. years. Yeah, I I really like the idea of having both holidays on the same day and letting people choose which one they choose to observe and finding out how morally corrosive somebody is based on that. I I think it's yeah. a pretty efficient system. Uh, but I mean, yeah. this is a year when we finally have seen so many uh, Caucasian folks learn the term residential schools. You know, it really Mm -hmm. does seem like, and I give the internet a lot of credit for this, uh, Mm -hmm. our culture's moral awareness is beginning to expand at a level I've never seen in my life. Right. Yeah, well, it's different when it comes to indigenous people, right? And I've said this a thousand times, that you can't be the greatest nation in the world if you're guilty of a genocide. And, you know, I think people, when it comes to indigenous people and natives, you know, it's really opening up that that skeleton in the closet, you know, people don't want to know. 
that maybe their house, they're like, well, we were five generations and my family has always, you know, lived on this farm. No, no, you haven't. There are Italian restaurants in Italy that are still serving food that are older than this country. And, but I think it's really hard for a lot of people to, to face that reality of what this country has done to indigenous peoples and does to indigenous people and will continue to do. And, you know, that's, of course, me talking about oil and gas and pipelines and going through our territories and digging up, you know, graves of our, our ancestors. That was a whole thing of Standing Rock in 2016. So for us, colonialism, colonialism isn't something that happened. It's still happening. It's still going Everybody's on. Everybody's still here. You exactly. Know, just because it's not a, a covered wagon doesn't mean that that car isn't a representative of colonialism and stolen indigenous land. It's a great point. We're, we're getting better at talking about institutionalized racism, but we're not mm-hmm. still talking about institutionalized colonialism and the sorts of mental mm-hmm. frameworks that we're all raised with to find acceptable. And there's no guidebook for how to tear them down. It's just the work that, you know, activists and journalists like you were doing. But as you so often point out, it's it's all about representation. Is, is it yep. true that the, the New York Times doesn't have a single Native American on their entire staff? Mm hmm. No, I mean, again, that that indigenous, one of the things that's so unique to us is there's always going to be somebody in the room, especially if you go to a university or in an office and somebody's going to be a quarter Cherokee. And so there's a lot of these people that will claim to be a quarter Cherokee, but they're not a part of the community. And what's so egregious also is if it's in the newsroom, they're not pitching stories. They're not pitching stories about murdered and missing indigenous women. They're not talking about environmental racism. They're just box checkers. They're checking a box and saying they have high cheekbones, and then that's the end of it. And then they get the gig, they get the job, they get, they're the wow. professor, they're the journalist. While there's, you know, it's, it's sad that the New York Times doesn't have an indigenous person on staff. I graduated from Columbia Journalism in 2013. In almost 10 years, I've applied 12 times. None, not even, they didn't so much as a fuck off. And, and then I found out that mine is the same situation that a whole bunch of indigenous people were talking about. They had applied, and they weren't accepted. So, you know, the cancellation of indigenous voices is a very real thing. You had a great tweet a couple of weeks ago uh, from a CNN breaking news exit poll showing uh, in, in, in a race for president uh, how people were voting white, Latino, black, Asian or something else. Yeah, <laughs> and we were listed as something else. I mean, I, we're either othered. Or mm-hmm. something else. Something else was new. Something else. Typically, we're familiar with that the, the category of other, and that's where we're typically thrown in, right? We're we are the smallest racial minority in our ancestral land, but it doesn't mean that we should be othered or we're something else. Especially when there's just thousands, if not millions, of people that still keep that that weird story that their great grandma was a Cherokee princess. So <laughs> it's it's weird. Yeah, man, it's weird to be like culturally visible, but culturally invisible, meaning that, you know, they'd love our, like, you'll see somebody driving down the street here in Santa Fe, and they're going to have a dream catcher hanging in the, you know, the rearview mirror. And then you see somebody that, or they, oh, they find out you're native. And so immediately they have to tell you about their great, 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 great grandpa, who is a, you know, Cherokee. So so it's really weird, man, to, to see people have that fetish about you and your, your, your cultures and your languages. But then when it really comes down to it, we are canceled out of that discussion. Yeah. I mean, I look, I have nothing against uh, an awkward white person who's trying to be nice and says something 
you know, tacky. I get it. I do that all the time as an awkward white person. But, you know, it's about more than your little pop culture touchstones. It's about, you know, how aware are you uh, that the struggle of the people who are here first is still ongoing? How aware are you of all the progress that is being made? Because God knows it's not getting covered on the news. I mean, there is good news happening all over the place. There's activists like you that are making a difference, but it's it's like organized labor. You won't see it covered yeah. on American corporate news. Mm-mm. No, and it's, it's, it's even with the language. And I think you and I have discussed this before. So like, here comes Thanksgiving. This is our busy season, right? This is, yeah. you know, you have Columbus Day, then you have Thanksgiving, then you have Halloween parties where somebody's dressing up as a native. November is Native American Heritage Month. But, you know, the, the thing is, it's also in the language. Like, they still, like, if I'll write a story for NBC News, Legacy Media, I still, they put me in the opinion section, even though we're supposed to be dealing in fact, um, they'll still use Settler or Pilgrim right. or, right. you know, even Colonist. But again, Invader is far more accurate. You first had to invade our territories and then you settled. But settle is like lighter. It's something, you know, it's, it's easier. And then we're the ones that get labeled as, you know, I don't know, just being, what somebody tweeted me recently and said it was a, uh, I hadn't heard that term in a long time, like a powder puff or something like that, saying, you know, that was the PC police. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're not going to get anything more PC than a history textbook, especially hmm. when it comes to us. Were you at all heartened by seeing Pope Francis travel to Canada to actually publicly apologize for the residential schools? To me, I mean, it, it represented progress, and I'm glad people are learning about this atrocity, but I'm still a bit shocked, Simon, that we can't get a dialogue going about how the same exact kind of schools were flourishing here in the States. Yeah. I mean, again, like you said, people are only learning about residential schools, boarding schools, and how, you know, outside of these boarding schools are mass graves of Indigenous children. And they're finding all these graves in Canada right now. And I know Deb Holland is working on finding the graves here. But these are stories that we were raised with. You know, we knew that our grandparents were taken away from, you know, their families and placed in these these Bible black, you know, schools where they're literally like these white Catholic priests and nuns were molesting kids and piercing their tongue with needles if they dare spoke their language. This is all fact. And, but again, the United States and especially our school system, you know, those stories don't get told. You have to go to college and maybe take an ethnic studies course to learn the real facts of what the Catholic Church, the United States, and just basically people that wanted our land and wanted our bodies, what they did. And it's brutal. I mean, the stories get really, really dark, especially when it comes to like scalping. People. think that you know it was like a native american thing to scalp fuck that we didn't they were bald there was nothing to scalp they yeah. wanted our hair and so yeah. our elders way our ancestors back in the day um saw them as that i guess that's how you demonstrate that you just won and so we reversed it we're like all right so scalp them but then people still don't know that yeah those weren't just from men they from women and children and they're still hanging up in museums all over the world you know, when we talk about representation, I, I got to be honest, it, it, it's so incredible to see what has happened with the show Reservation Dogs. Just mm-hmm. the fact that someone greenlit the funding, someone said, OK, let's take a chance at this and went for a, a you know, a, I mean, these guys were sketch comics and they had a big following within the community. And I don't think they'll ever get respect from the Emmys, but I never thought we'd see the show move and and 
be able to at least gain this kind of audience and let it grow. I really like your piece with Paulina Alexis. For those who don't know her, you know, what drew you to Reservation Dogs and and how did this interview come about? I actually, uh, the New Yorker hit me up because they saw my tweet where I was, I basically told the Grammys to fuck off because. Yeah, it's a great tweet. I love that. Yeah. The Reservation Reservation Dogs, they they won a Peabody Award. They're like 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. There's never been a show like this before. And honestly, this introduces indigenous people very modernly, you know, living in the, even if it's on the reservation, but indigenous people have now have access to these people's homes. And somebody who's just like cruising Hulu or is on FX and they see the show, that this is the first time they're ever really seeing that. Because right. there's been shows like Longmire where you have, you know, a native character. But when the sh- this show is centered around indigenous peoples and who we are, and people start to learn even like not even uh, like our indigenous languages, which is included in the show, but things like what is a snag? A snag is when you go and you're dating somebody or you're going to a powwow and you met your snag. So like the, the nomenclature, who we are as modern people, it's, it's never happened before. They got snubbed by the Emmys. But yeah. I'm at least, you know, the positive part of it is people are starting to see us as modern, not like, you know, half naked right. on the back of a horse, you know, fighting some cowboy. Right. And and not necessarily just modern and tragic or modern and impoverished, but actually modern and funny, modern and yeah. vital. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's amazing how comedy, once again, is such a powerful weapon for social change. It is. It is. And we have to thank, you know, like you were saying, the comedy troupe of 1491 and uh, Sterling Harjo for that. That You know, I don't know how they got the green light for the show, but the fact that more people are aware that, you know, we have cell phones. <laughs> I mean, something as simple as that. You know, because people, you know, they, I'm in Santa Fe. I mean, there's, there's this is a fetish here. They want to touch you. You know, they, they, they reach for your braids or they want to touch your skin. And it's like, just like, it is the weirdest thing when somebody has like a foot fetish for a person. And they yeah. just want to touch you. And in places like this, you got to tell them, look, this is a part of my body. Even if it's my, my beaded necklace. Like, you right. can't just walk up and grab that necklace. You know, this is a part of my body. And But now the discussions are happening. People are like, okay, so Native Americans, let's learn more about them. I mean, they're modern. They're here. They're not living in teepees. And, you know, we're trying to push back against all the stereotypes, you know, like we're drunks. And then the other one is like, we go to school for free. So if you're native, you can just walk into Harvard with a pencil. Oh, of course. Yes, of course. Oh, the perks are so great. Yeah. So, you know, to me, it was astonishing that that this woman, Paulina Alexis, can win a Peabody Award, uh, win an Independent Spirit Award, be, you know, pretty much the whole show shut out from the Emmys. But the Mm -hmm. fact that like they're getting a third season, it's clearly a success. The reviews are unanimous. And to read your interview and hear her talk about the fact that, like, it never occurred to her she could ever have this kind of career because Mm -hmm. there was no role models at all. I mean, how many First Nations actors can everybody name from the 20th century? Chief Dan George and and Wes Studi. I mean, you know, to, to realize that there were just no models at all for a young First Nations American boy or girl to think they could aspire to. Yeah, or non-binary, and that's that's the whole thing, especially when I was growing up in journalism. I didn't know any Native journalists. I just knew that there was a lot of bullshit written in paper, and I was like, that's not true, and, you know, I was, all right, so I started writing. But there was no, you know, you turn on, you know, NBC or ABC or even, you know, MTV back in the day. There was no Indigenous people, but that's something that people need to be evaluating now. 
Like, why isn't there an indigenous person telling the news right now on TV? Why does NBC News have an army of uh, reporters to cover the black community, the Latino community, the Asian community, LGBTQ women? But there's nothing for indigenous people. And, you know, that even goes into music and movies. And I try to get people to be like, okay, name me five Native American musicians right now. Go. And a lot of people can't, unless you're Native. They're like, okay, name me five Native actors right now. Go. Right. Exactly. And they'll be like, that one that's on that show, oh, God, what's his name? And so that's it. And so we're the representation, I think, it, it, if one thing is for certain, we have to do it ourselves. Sterling and the 1491 the show creator, they had to do this on their own. Nobody came and knocked at their door. You know, that's the thing. Natives have to, you know, put a chair at the table and say, yeah, us too. And then people go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, them, Natives, how did we forget? So, you know, it's no, it, it really is disappointing that we do have to struggle so hard just to get a seat at the table, no matter where it's at, whether That's it's right. in journalism or in Hollywood or in the corporate world or universities. It's, you know, we always have to like barrel down those doors. Simon, what are your thoughts on the upcoming midterms? Uh, are you are you uh, looking forward to what's going on? I, I know that your governor in New Mexico, who I've met before, has been having a bit of a tough time. But what are your thoughts as we get closer to the midterms and uh, the possibility of the Republicans taking the House or Senate? You know, I'm kind of disappointed with uh, how things are going right now. Right. We have, you know, we have Biden and we have all of these great, you know, uh, you know, speakers in the sense like they want to they talk a big game but that's the thing about indigenous people too i mean there's going to be indigenous republicans there's going to be indigenous democrats but for the most part i mean that distrust of government is still really strong with us so we can be hopeful we can hope that you know if somebody's elected that they're going to represent indigenous communities or you know protect our in our, our rights as separate sovereign nations but for the most part, you know, a lot of the elected officials, you know, they come through, take photos. And then we, again, we have to, like, fight for the water. We have to fight for the land. We have to raise awareness about things that are happening in our community. But all over the country, and I think people know this, but I don't think they're always thinking about it. There's a reason there's no reservation in Manhattan. There's a reason there's no reservation right. smacked up in L.A. When they moved indigenous people, removed them from their, their land, they put them in these very isolated places. So we, we don't typically get the same stumping. So you're not typically going to see somebody like in Colorado. I just ran into Michael Bennett. And, but he was at, you know, at, a, at a bar trying to, you know, hey, how's everybody doing? Oh, cool. But people aren't going to the reservation typically to do that, to get our votes, even though our votes can swing an election because That's right. we are overlooked. We're overlooked, but we do vote. Because it's still, this is still our land and things matter on the reservation, even though we could be two hours from the city. So I guess I'm hopeful as usual, but I don't hold my breath. Simon, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your work? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> lately, because again, this being the busy season, you know, you could find me at, on all kinds of platforms, whether it be, the, you know, NBC News or uh, uh, The Cut, you know, The New Yorker. Uh, or New York Mag, excuse me. But uh, on, on Twitter, that's usually where I post all of my links and have all of these discussions with people um, at Simon Moya Smith. And uh, yeah, that's where I usually rant and rage and <laughs> throw my stories up. Well, I want to thank you for always keeping Twitter interesting, and you're one of the reasons why I won't quit. What are you working on next, Simon? Oh, man, I, I hate to talk about 
toast while it's still bread, but I was uh, hit up. There's a lot of Hollywood stuff happening here in Santa Fe, and uh, so I was, I, I, they're like, look, you're a writer. We needed to help us with a script. So I just went from journalism into script writing. It's very skeletal. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait till you can tell us more about it. And please, please come join us anytime. I'd love to have you on the show as often as you like. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. You bet, man. Thank you so much. We got to take a quick break. When we come back, all of your calls at 866-997-4748. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's get to the phones, shall we? Dylan in New Mexico, welcome. Yo, John. Hey, that was a great interview with uh, Simon in Santa Fe. Um, He's great. I'm going to definitely check out some of his journal articles. And I uh, wanted to tie in that we, you know, we have the uh, first congressional indigenous woman, Miss Holland, over here. Who's That's right. Secretary. So it's definitely, uh, since I moved to New Mexico, I've only been here about three years, but uh, my realization of indigenous culture is a lot more relevant here than than ever before so i'll bet uh, yeah. beautiful state beautiful state it is i love your state i love new mexico yeah, yeah. by the way you gotta come and uh do another comedy tour here man i want to go <laughs> check you out i've never seen never seen you live but i oh well i'd love to i've played yeah, albuquerque and santa fe many many times and i I'm, I'm deeply in love with your state and i'm hoping that i'll be on the road all year next year well i'm 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 uh rooting i'll be there if we do I, I, Thank I, you. I wanted to call about the um the caller earlier like hour two at uh, he also called Tom Hartman's show earlier, but he was referring to how the he he said in, in some of his ridiculous comments he said that the um, that the South used to be uh, Mississippi used to be Democrat uh, yeah. run state, which is it is true, but he didn't mention the reason why it stopped becoming de- mm-hmm. Democratic state is because. Uh, the LBJ signed the uh, Civil Rights Act in the 60s, and ever since the Civil Rights Act was signed, uh, the Democratic Party has never got a majority white male vote since then. Before yeah, then, yep. we had all the we had a bunch of white male voters even during Franklin Roosevelt because there was a lot of good things that the Democratic Party still does for workers, but they they had a uh, racist side still, just like sure any white male has had in their history, but 
once LBJ passed the civil rights law, then they lost all those white male votes. And that's, uh, that's the story. So for anyone wondering why they stopped becoming democratic states, that's the reason. Thank you very much. Sort of I appreciate it, Dylan. And yep. you're right. Thanks, I mean, and a lot of those Republicans, a lot of those Democrats became Republicans like Strom Thurmond. Mm-hmm. Thank you so very much. Marie in Atlanta. Welcome. Hey there, John. Thanks for taking Hi. my call. Happy Thank Indigenous you. People's Day. Or Happy Indigenous People's Day to you. Thank you. It's European Illegal Immigration Day. <sighs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about the Tuberville racist comment about saying that Please. Democrats want crime because they believe it's reparations. Oh, no, they they want to give reparations to the criminals. I mean, he yeah. he just didn't even sometimes sometimes your dog whistles a train whistle. But what did you think? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, clearly very few people missed the racist bullhorn that reparations was code for black people wanting something that American racists don't believe they deserve in any measure. Mm-hmm. But what has long been overlooked is that the racism that is encoded in the Republican Party rhetoric has been a steady march to reviving, and I'm going to be careful not to say it fully, the epithet and lover. Yeah. Um, in the early 20th century, for those who don't know the history of that term and what, and what it really means, um, if a white person was seen being kind to a black person or just treating them with common decency, then they could be called an end-lover. Mm-hmm. And that had severe economic and social consequences. Their business could be boycotted. Their social network would shun them. Social networks in those days were, you know, how business got done, how people right. got into the country club and how their business, you know, got contracts for things. Um, their children um, could be ostracized. So without using the term anymore, Tuberville knows that there are still white Democrats, but because his comment talks about Democrats giving, quote unquote, the criminals reparations, what he has done is to relegate those white Democrats to the status of end lover. And it's an attempt essentially, number one, to label the entire Democratic Party as being the party of black people, but to bully white allies into silence. Boom. And I'm not sure that people really pick up on that. That's so true. It's totally true. And in, in many communities, that works. But in the age of the internet, it's harder to do. It's a lot yeah. harder to do. Marie, thank you so much. Thank you for classing up this show every time. Thank you. We're just <laughs> down here in the mug, and you always elevate us. Thank you very, very much. Let me go to Marty in St. Louis. Hi, Marty. You're on Sirius XM. Hey. Hi, how you doing? Great, how are you? Oh, I'm uh, always nervous to get on the radio, but um, I, oh, I don't be. didn't want to go on the wish you a happy holiday. And I remember years ago reading Howard Zinn and his takedown of uh, uh, Columbus. And it's yeah. just uh, things you, you never learned that you should have learned. It devastated up. me I mean, the first never time I read Howard Zinn. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Never set foot in America or what would nope. become America. And if you didn't find gold for me, chop your hand off and all that horrible yeah. stuff. It's just, oh, yeah. It's just horrible. To children. Yeah. But I was calling about uh, Steve Cohn earlier from uh, Kentucky. Yeah. And uh, he was talking about sending your picture in. And, and they got the same deal here. They started that in Missouri. I think it's uh, probably an Alec part of the stop is trying to steal all future elections. Wow. Um, Just to make it a little harder for this person to vote, a little harder for that person to vote. Well, I've always I traveled, so I always got, because um, I never knew if I was going to And in Missouri, you always had a notary. 
signature, yeah. which is a pain in the butt. And yeah. now you need a notary signature, and you need a uh, picture, send your picture ID to the authorities. And, it, and the other thing that's driving me nuts Just is crazy. to be able to walk like a half a mile to the church to vote. Right. And now it's like six miles because all the church and schools are saying don't close votes because of the gun. So, you know, the plan's working pretty well for some. plan's days. working. I mean, that's that's the whole plan is to just when their ideas are not popular enough to win in democracy, they will find a way to beat democracy and make it a little Absolutely. harder for this person to vote, a little harder for these folks to vote, around and around until the, the numbers are in their favor. Yeah, it's, it's really getting uh, disgusting. But yeah. anyway, I appreciate your show. And, uh, Thank you. Talking. I appreciate it. Let's, let's hope there's a much bigger voter turnout this year than the media seems to want us to think there will be. Thank you, Marty. We got to go. Thank you for a great show. Jessica Pielko and Amanda Gandhi return to the show tomorrow, and we'll talk to you then. I'm John Fuel saying keep it tuned to progress. Happy Indigenous Persons Day. Happy Indigenous Persons Day.